Hello, welcome back to the Udo Film Club podcast. We are continuing our top 10 films of 2022. This is part two, and we are going to be talking about our top four. Uh, same crew as before, and we're going to start off with PJ's number four, which is Crimes of the Future. Yes, Crimes of the Future, David Cronenberg's latest film. Hasn't made a film in a long time, since 2014, actually. Um, and so, but he this is actually from a script he wrote in 1998, and according to him, he didn't really update it, which is, if you know the plot of the film, is pretty remarkable. So basically, it's about... Um, We've got Viggo Mortensen, who plays Saul Tenser, and um, Leia Seydoux, who it has a French name, and I can't remember it off the top of my head right now. But um, they are visual artists in this weird, sort of rusted-out future. Like, they, all the location work is done in, like, an abandoned Athens, where there's, like, like ship graveyards and, like, you know empty graffiti streets and it makes it a really bizarre and interesting atmosphere in which basically what has happened is human pain no longer exists and humans are sort of evolving in strange ways and as a result of human pain no longer existing what is like the most popular form of entertainment is visual artists who play with the human body um in interesting ways so in for example with Viggo Mortensen what makes him like the most popular visual artist performing artist is the fact that he grows new organs in his body um, and then him and Lady Seduce character do these live shows in which they do like dissections of him um, and like take out the new organs and show them off or like tattoo the organs on him um, and basically like for Saul Tenser like this is a very painful process and it's like he thinks of it as something that's killing him and so the act of removing his organs is both an artistic process for them and something that he sees as necessary to himself um, and so we get all that but then there's all this other cool and, and, uh, imagery of like you know guys sewing a bunch of ears to themselves and like dancing to weird music that dude's pretentious yeah and he hates that guy um, <laughs> um, and like you know people mutilating their faces adding new strange body contortions to themselves um, there's even like you know Kristen Stewart is also in this movie one of the supporting characters I think it's her best role she plays this really like mousy like jittery like uh, character who works for so in this new world also like what these sort of nebulous governments are worried about is human evolution going past a point at which humanity is becoming like something new and unnatural um, and so they set up this secret government organization called the National Organ Registry in which all new grown organs in human bodies have to be registered with the government and so she works for that but both of the organ registry characters become like because of how just like alluring this world of human modification is becoming natural human modification um, they become like entranced in it and she says like a, probably the most famous line from movies when she says surgery is the new sex um, and in this film there's a lot of like 
a lot of sex is just people like cutting into each other and it makes it it's pretty great I mean it's a Cronenberg film he's known for his body horror um, but in this film what he does with it is I think it's unique to his other films in that like it becomes about it's a representation of how he feels about his own like artistic creation like his process it's like literally for him it's like you know tearing open his insides and pulling out organs dis- disgusting new unhuman organs to show to the world and like there's a beauty to that but then there's also like the sort of destructive nature and how you have to present yourself to the world um, but like even with that like there's this romance that evolves between Saul Tensor's character and Lady Sadu's character and like the act of creation between them sort of I don't know. It like pull, brings them together in a unique way, and I think is very interesting. Um, I don't know. Has anybody else seen this? Yeah, one? I've seen it. You have anything you want to say about? Yeah. It? So I mean, for start, am I allowed to discuss like the plot twist? I guess. I'll plug my ears. I haven't seen it. Uh, what do you mean by the plot twist? Like the end. Like the plastic stuff. Yeah, the plastic stuff. I think we can talk about that a little bit because okay. I don't think saying what it is like yeah i think we can talk about it a little bit so okay. like so like one of the aspects of the film i won't say specifically in the way in which it emerges but like there's a group that um like they've modified themselves to be able to eat plastic um and so one aspect of the film that becomes like especially thematic is the idea of we now live in this like techno hell future and so the only way for human salvation is like feeding off of our own industrial waste you know and it's interesting that he wrote the script in 1998 when the idea of microplastics like wasn't something that was on anybody's mind but now like you know we all are like 70% plastic on one side <laughs> and we're just fucking eating a credit card every day um <laughs> But it's like, yeah, it becomes... I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to say. No, I just... Like, thematically, it's maybe the most interesting movie of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw it more as, like, some, like, strange, optimistic kind of metaphor of, like, this is how I perceive youth culture is, like... Interesting. I'm like a weird old man and I look at the kids and I see them mutilating each other and trying to eat garbage. But I think But it's like this is just the natural process of human evolution. Like I'm being left behind and and you know pain is gone. It's not necessarily a bad thing that everybody's mutilating each other and that uh people are eating garbage. In fact, that's like the ecologically sustainable way for human humanity to progress I think like in a lot of his films he sort of has those elements of like authoritarian government and like corporate like CD corporate like underbelly type stuff Um, and I think the way he is that in this film um, in some aspects it's like he's sort of commenting on how especially in America, the world is like a lot of the sort of culture war has evolved to be 
highly focused on human bodies and like, you know, whether it be with abortion or transgender rights, like, mm. it's like these sort of, he's like reveling in the freedom of like, you know, Bodily the human on. body is like sort of inner, he talks a lot about inner beauty, but sort of like how the body is like sort of a way to express yourself. Um, but yeah, and I, I would say one of the, the biggest flourishes of the film is the final shot of the film, which I won't say what it is, but I will say it references a, you know, a masterpiece of 1920s cinema, when mm. I won't say what that film is. Right. But it's, it's pretty spectacular. And I think just sort of in a cultural sense, I think it's pretty spectacular that we still have, you know, this older generation of artists like, you know, Scorsese, Paul Schrader, Cronenberg, who are like sort of almost like at their most like experimental in these latter stages of their life and they're still making work like this and they're still being like even more and more personal. Um, so yeah, I just think that's a great thing. But yeah, Crimes of the Future is a great film. Great. Thank you. Also, best score of the year. Okay. Amazing score from Howard Shore in this one. But yeah, we can move on. So yeah, um, if we're going to move on, we're actually moving on to Luke's number four, which I don't think was also on anyone else's list, is After Yang. Uh, yeah, this was a surprise. I'm very glad that I got the chance to see this movie. I was like, someone recommended it to me, and then I looked up like showtimes for it near me, like in a theater, and the next, the next and what would be the only theater showtime I would ever get was the following day. So I... Got very lucky, got the chance to see it in theater, and this movie kind of floored me um, in a really, in a, in a very gentle way, like emotionally floored me. Mm-hmm. Um, directed by, written and directed by Kaganata, based on a short story. It's um, tells the story of a family uh, with an adopted daughter, uh, a husband and wife and adopted daughter, um, who is Chinese. The daughter is Chinese. They are not, and so they have this sort of android named Yang to not only and they're both they're both like busy they're both like implied to be like you know middle class family living like a comfortable lifestyle but you know, but working jobs that demand a lot of time outside the house so they're both gone so Yang takes on a lot of the responsibility of raising their daughter um, and also kind of doing it's understated but doing some of like the oh like you're Chinese and like here's what that means but in a way that sort of understands like the movie is, like, aware, and it's interrogating the idea. It's like, oh, what does the culture mean? Like, what does it mean to be raised outside of that culture by people who weren't part of that culture? Um, and, it, and it uses that as, like, a, another way of approaching the main things it's getting at, which is the nature of memory and what it means to be human. Um, because the main thrust of the film is that Yang all of a sudden stops working, and... I don't think it's a spoiler to say that they never get him to start working again. So with that rift left in his wake, they're sort of trying to figure out what Yang meant to them. And also, they're discovering, like, when they're basically going through Yang's memories and real and realizing that he thought, like, trying to see that what he, what they meant to him and what he meant to them. And, yeah, it's just, it's really, it's a really gen- gentle is, a, is an amazing way to put it. It's, like, very slow... Um, very slowly paced, just lots of people talking with each other, um, and yeah, I don't think uh, another film last year kind of approached the subject of loss in a more just very gentle kind of way. Um, 
Did all of you see this movie? Yeah, actually. I, I saw it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I like I liked Kogonada's previous work, Columbus, a lot. Yes. Um, I would say, for me, it was like not necessarily on the same level. Um, I mean, I, I enjoyed it this after getting stylistically a lot. Um, stylistically, it's... Mm-hmm. I love it a lot. There's, yeah. They write references, you know, Yatajiro Ozu. Yeah. And, and I think it... As you were talking about sort of the idea of cultural memory, I think it gives, does a good job of, mm-hmm. like, examining that deeper. Um, occasionally it was a little too lo-fi for me, but, um, you know, if you know what I mean. But, like, mm-hmm. I think for sure I enjoyed it a lot, and I think some of the performances are really good. Yeah. So. I would say the lo-fi elements are what personally appealed to me a lot. Like, right. like, it, know, like it does, exactly. It's, yeah, teach their own. I, I like, I, the, the film takes place in, like, the future um, but in like a very like it's never they never go out of their way to like make it's like oh we're in the future so we got like flying cars and like giant like you know other stuff it's like oh it's like oh in the distance you see like a skyline with some more interesting like architecture or like oh you know the cars don't have any steering wheels they just drive themselves and they, but no one's ever remarking on that and it's never the focus mm-hmm. so I, I kind of like how and it, and 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 a lot of it comes down to like the art design of the film, like people like the costumes that people are wearing in this near future. Um, yeah. My main takeaway was just the production design. Yes. It was really interesting to see like an eco-friendly future. Like mm-hmm. everybody's got like arboretums in the back of their cars <laughs> and stuff, and pl- and the plants are just everywhere. Like. Mm-hmm intertwined with the technology and that was really unique yeah uh, solar punk type yeah of. yeah solar punk <laughs> i like that it's a uh, yeah it's certainly like very casual not utopia because there's definitely like the, there's still all these like problems on the margins and but i think even if it was utopia i think it's kind of it would be if it's not. I don't think the film's actually doing this, but if it was like trying to play utopia, it would be showing the limits of utopia about how there's still like problems, like mm-hmm. you know, people will still die. Um, so, yeah, really great, really great, um, slow, um, slow moving film. If you're in, if you've got like, if you're in the mood for it, I think I think it can really take it. And we love Colin Farrell. Yeah, and we, and, oh, yeah. Oh, the, there's gonna be a lot of Colin Farrell talk. Yeah, Colin, <laughs> Colin Farrell had the best year, I think, last year. Um, yeah. And an incredible uh, title sequence as well. Oh my god, we're not we're not let's not talk about it. But because I want, well, I'm, to, I'm, I'm just saying it's awesome. It's an amazing the only clip I've seen from the movie. <laughs> <laughs> it is the greatest. Um, like uh, yeah, the, like the all movies should have the title sequence that agreed. Uh, Joey Turner Smith, who plays Colin Farrell's wife, also a great performance. Yes. Yeah, yeah, all good. Yeah, I'll definitely give this a watch. Uh, my sister watched it; she loved it. It's been on my radar. She actually. I wish it was done watching on things other than Showtime. I watched it on Showtime. <laughs> yeah, me yeah. too. I have Showtime for Yellow Jackets, so I'll end up just watching it. Um, but I guess speaking of Colin Farrell, we can actually move on to Harrison's number four film, which I think is also just on everyone's list. TJ had it as number six. Except me. I had it as seven. Well, um, it might be when I finally watch it. We'll <laughs> um, it is Banshees of Inisherin. Right, okay. So Banshees of Inisherin. Uh, so it starts with Colin Farrell, Padraic, Padraic? Padraic. Padraic, okay, yeah. Uh, he's walking through his small Irish hometown of Inisherin. Rainbows are in the sky. There's some serene music playing, and he goes to the pub to meet with his best friend, Colm, 
who, cool. yeah, who he's hung out with every single day for who knows how long, but Colm isn't there anymore. So he goes to look for him and he can't find him. And then when he does find Colm, he's just like, don't talk to me ever again. I don't like you anymore. And that's just like... And he asks him why. And he's yeah, just like, you're boring. decided I don't like you anymore. Yeah. Yeah. But you liked me yesterday. Yeah. yeah. But um, so for starters, this is just like a nightmare scenario. Yeah. <laughs> just like one day your best friends just like you're kind of boring. Like, I'll kill myself if you talk dull. to me again. Yeah. Right. You're dull. Yeah. We're rowing right but now. It's always been dull. <laughs> yeah. Um. All right. So this was one that my first watch was pretty surface level but even at the surface level it's just a fantastic personal story of you know Podrick trying to reclaim his or rekindle his friendship with Colm and I don't know he like loops everybody into his little squabble uh, I think we can say sort of what this central so like eventually because Padraig just can't understand why yeah. this is happening to him. Colin gets so fed up that he threatens to cut off all of his fingers okay, yeah. every single time. This is you'll find me. Um, I haven't said if he does it or not. Um, <laughs> he threatens to cut off all of his fingers for every time that Padraig talks to him, despite like begging him not to. You know, um, so then like the stakes are suddenly. Yeah. Much higher. And it's sort of the film becomes about like this sort of the the tyranny of like petty differences. Yeah. yeah. Like how pettiness can just rise to like this level. Yeah, it's yeah. disgusting yeah. heights. Um but it is also both characters I thought were like mildly sympathetic. They're assholes, but like mm-hmm. you can understand where both of them are coming from because Podrick is boring. Like, yeah, he's dull, he's dumb. And he spends two hours talking about pony shit. Yeah. Pony shite. And it's your donkey. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, but Calm, his thing is that he wants to be a master composer. He wants to create uh, a piece of work that will be remembered. Mm-hmm. He's having a bit of, like, three-quarter life crisis, I guess. Yeah. It's like he has, like, this sense of despair from, like, he's just... What you come to learn is he's like almost had like this realization in his life that his life has been sort of the same his entire life. Yeah. And he's all of a sudden like, well, now I have to very drastically change that, you know? Yeah. And I don't know, there's just this interesting conversation here about like what is like the purpose of friendship or mm-hmm. in human existence. Like, it, like, is it just, is it enough to just be chatting with your boys every mm-hmm. single day, even if you're not producing anything or is it like no we need to create art mm-hmm. and mean something and of course you know is it being nice or is it doing what's best for yourself yeah like is it wrong to be selfish yeah and I think there's an interesting thing that he interrogates too with sort of the idea of like sort of the smallness of the individual and in that like they live on this tiny island off the coast of Ireland and nothing of note happens there. Yeah. And this is like, it sort of takes place during the time of the Irish Civil War. Right. And they see like shots being fired every once in a while. 
but they're just like, you know, I don't know what's happening over there. That's all they, they can yeah. say. Um, and so it's like, you know, there's this sense of like futility. So it's like, it, it leads you to question like, like sort of the value of what, like what they think their lives should be. Like, should you think your life should be something or should you just live your life, you know? It's like, it's, it brings some interesting questions. And I think probably like the most devastating character is uh, Barry Keown's yeah. performance. He plays like this little annoying guy. Yeah, he's 12 in this movie for some reason. Is he actually 12? No, he's no, nine, he's not. He's not 12, but he's he's younger than the 12 casting. Um, and he's like also really dumb, really annoying, but like he has a very sad backstory and like he just doesn't know how to carry himself around people um and yeah i don't know it's just like it's a really good interrogation of human relationships and like these sort of small resentments that can build from pettiness especially in these like closed communities in which you see Mm. the same people every day you know you can't just drop somebody when there's like 20 people where you live exactly yeah but and then the thing was, when I watched it the second time, it really hit me that, like, it is just in and of itself, like, an allegory for the Irish Civil War. Like, they just can't leave each other alone. It's not feasible, I guess, or... I don't know. Uh, but either way, uh, it's like this really interesting anti-violence movie, I'd say, but it does so with very little actual violence. Mm-hmm. Which makes for an interesting contrast to, like, all quiet on the Western Front or whatever, <laughs> where it's like, violence is bad, violence is bad, and then, show like... show you t- only violence, only violence. Yeah, and then it's yeah. like, I'm getting my ten chained headshots. Mm-hmm. Violence <laughs> is bad. <laughs> John Wick action scene. Kill violence my, is kill bad. My mustard gas kill streak. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, so I just thought it was interesting that Banshees, again, does anti-violence without I mean you know there is the like threat threats of self-mutilation mm-hmm. and there are some other things near the end but that was just very unique I hadn't really seen something like that yeah so uh, I'll just say I also saw it but I had a similar experience where I felt it was surface level the first time I watched it and then it just kept like sticking in my mind for a couple weeks um and I think it kept sticking in my mind because I kept seeing rave reviews about it, and it all just came back to how it handles. For me, I didn't see it more as relationships, but as it was depression. Mm-hmm. So that was that was my main takeaway. I think it, it handled um, how depression not just affects you but others, and that can incorporate into the relationship yeah. thing we were talking about um, pretty well. But that, that's all I'll say about it. Yeah, I think we can now move on to. Can I say one more quick thing? Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. The Irishisms are great in it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It adds Even, to a yeah. lot the of The humor is fantastic. Yeah, because it's very funny, but it's like... But, so a lot of what Martin McDonough does, has done in the past is just dark humor in and of itself yeah. where he, like, says very fucked up shit in his movies. But in this one, it's funny, but then also dark. Like, it's not dark humor. It's, like, a dark movie that is also funny, which I think is what makes... Elevates it to be what I think is his best film. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. All right, moving on to Luke's number three film, which was also Harrison's number eight film, The Fablemans. Yeah, 
Um, you were talking earlier about directors kind of like in the twilight years of their careers making Spielberg very Spielberg as well. I yes. Yeah. Well, well I mean, now we have to talk about it here because The Palemans is like the Spielberg movie kind yeah. of. Like, it's, it's just... Yeah. It is good. It's, it's so... Oh my, like, that's, well, that's what kind of really amazes me about this movie is that it's like such... Like, I mean, we talk about a lot of these films being very personal films, but like, I don't think any film at this level of, at like this like high, you know, million dollar blockbuster level of filmmaking is been as personal as this it's one. It's literally his Because it's literally his just him. Yeah. And like, and, and, and it's his childhood and also it's just, it is just his childhood. And I don't mean that it's like, oh, he's like adapted it and fit it into like a movie structure. It's like, no, this is like, this is kind of just like his childhood. Like, it's yeah. like everything, like the very... Like, there's just the very casual ways that, like, his parents kind of suck, but are also really nice and, like, gave him a really good childhood, mm-hmm. like, they gave him a lot to reflect about, um, and, yeah, like, this this movie is, I know, in case you don't know, it's, like, uh, stars, it follows Sammy Fableman, um, as he grows up moving from place to place across America as his dad takes different jobs at moving up. Works for General Electric. Yeah, worked for General Electric, moving up like the ladder of uh, being an engineer at a t- at a time when you know worked General Electric, IBM, uh, stuff like that. Um, being being a Jew uh, at that time mm-hmm. as well. That's very like very important. Like not the main point of the film, but very important part yeah. of it. Um, uh, that kind of like and I, like the way it incorporates that kind of like spirituality in, in into a sense like. Uh, I think I still think about the scene where the mom gets a phone call from her mom who had just died recently, yeah. and <laughs> and yeah, and that and that kind of almost like then contrasting with like the message that Sammy then gets from his grandfather as he comes back or not, not his, yeah his, his, his uncle his uncle um, or great uncle gr- gr- gruncle yes yeah, um, <laughs> yeah no uh, it's. I don't really have much, like, it just, it just floors me, it's like, wow, I, like, I couldn't watch this movie with my parents, because, like, I, I could probably watch a movie with more fucked up shit in it with my parents, but I, I don't want to watch this movie with them, because it would just be very, it's like, oh, yeah, this is very, like, just very casual, like, very casually, um, uh, like, very, I mean, I, I mean, I'm struggling to sit like I would that. say, I mean, I think, um, I think what you're getting at a little bit is like I think a lot of I think it's very easy to misidentify the film as like a vanity project because mm-hmm. um, you know there's also there are elements magic where of he's the like, movies what, what, or just like there's elements where he's like yeah I was just always an amazing director yeah. <laughs> which <laughs> like <laughs> you know he's Steven Spielberg like you can give him a little bit of leash on that you know mm-hmm. um, but like what the what I thought was remarkable it's not on my list but I enjoyed it a lot as well what I thought was remarkable about it was like how he's just like it's it's not like a, it's not a positive film he's like really right. digging deep into his it's own like, like psychosexual organ, origins yeah and like you know there's like you know it's there's like stuff with him like how he's been like fetishized as a Jew or mm-hmm. like how he's viewed his mom even and like Right. I don't know. It's like it's really interesting there's, to see because like he sort of tears into his own like feeling responsible for his. I mean, it's we can say spoil that his parents got divorced. That's yeah. like every single movie he's ever been made. He's ever made has been about parents getting divorced. <laughs> um, but yeah, like how him how he played a role in that and like what his life of making movies, if that's like been 
worth it even yeah mm-hmm. like like it's really interesting <laughs> there's one like shot in this movie that kind of just makes it seem like damn it's kind of fucked up that this movie even exists right oh, like which, uh, shot? which part uh I, I get it. it's it's the shot where he's like oh, filming that, his yeah, family because that shot's because that shot's kind of fucked up because it's like oh damn like he's like he's thinking about that right now while his family is like going through really tumultuous time yeah. and but then it's more fucked up because then he actually did that and actually made that shot into yeah. a film so yeah that's for me i think that's what why i think it's so remarkable i didn't put it on my list i also but i, I still liked it um, I think that shot and then the final shot of the film sort of encompass how he's really good at like portraying the artist's dilemma of how you view your trauma as well. Um, like he saw his life through a movie camera. And right. so like yeah. it, the way he's able to sort of bring that to like to film and like illustrate that is pretty hard, but he does it really well. And I think with that whole shot of him holding the camera, like as this whole breakdown is happening, he is still viewing it like as a, as a film. And that's just like, how he is like it, he his uncle talked about it like the struggle of being an artist and I think mm-hmm. that was a pretty special moment well, those two moments yeah. now yeah. yeah good luck to you <laughs> he like he's really interested in interrogating because he's like he's recognizing now through the process of making this film like what the nature of his parents respective despair mm-hmm. um, which they each had um, you know he's both critical and understanding of both of them Um, and I think especially I think especially with the dad especially later on in the film he does like it's like this like really powerful like interest like both introspection in the the role that he played in his dad's like his dad's respective form of despair and like Mm -hmm. just like what like, it's a combination of how he views it now and, like, how he experienced it then, which I think is, I don't know, it's a little interesting. And it's, like, makes you think about how you think about your own life a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you got something you want to say about Oh, it's just, this was one where I had, again, a pretty simple reading first time, came back, and it was way more like, whoa, this is really interesting. It's not just, like, a weepy, sentimental Oscar drama type thing. It yeah. is the, just, like this self-interrogation like looking at the artifice of the movies that he makes Uh Spielberg because I mean on one hand you know he I think he messed up I mean like this is my autobiography should have been like this is the Fablemans (laughs) it's about Sammy Fableman a young yeah but there's only so long you can yeah (laughs) but yeah I don't know uh it's just this movie about like there's this great scene in the locker room at prom or, or in the, the hallway very, after the prom oh, yeah. Yeah. And, oh yeah and he just straight up says to the camera like I make movies because I like controlling my life mm-hmm. it gives me control over everything yeah which happens throughout the and movie. in yeah. that sense it's like it's like whoa it's terrifying that this movie's real then because mm-hmm. he's like this is really bad behavior yeah. but I can't stop doing it right here yeah, I yeah. it's just interesting as a surface level like Vanity project, yeah. but then like, because it's know, a good, it's a good family drama. Just yeah, yeah. At this level, and yeah. then there's all these scenes like with Judd, like Judd Hirsch's character, his conversation yeah. with Sam, mm-hmm. that whole scene in the locker room, which is like one of the top scenes of the year. Like, because like, of how many scenes there are where he's just like being a fucking god tier director as a mm-hmm. child. Yeah. Well, that's what's <laughs> uncomfortable about watching yeah. again is that like, how much of this is real? 
if if you yeah. if you do just see it as an autobiography, how much of it is real and how much of it is just like I've made a movie where I'm the main character of the entire universe <laughs> and everything revolves around my growth as a filmmaker and my evolution into the greatest filmmaker of all time. I'm going to cast all these Oscar-winning actors to be my family mm-hmm. and they're going to get all these big emotional moments. Yeah, but he's also like I feel like he's also like mad at himself for yeah, no, doing no. that. Right. Exactly. That's, That's why it's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I I very much enjoyed the Fablemans and I'm glad it was actually brought up despite me not putting it on my list <laughs> yeah. as well. Last thing I'll say about it real quick is that it's also like it's you know, on like a personal level, it's like, hey, I'm kind of in the same place as Stanley Fableman is like toward the end of the movie where it's like you know, I'd like to be a filmmaker long term yeah. here. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the, what the, what the prospects are like on that long term, um, but this film doesn't necessarily end on the highest note. For, though it, it ends on a positive note, I would say. Like you, you know, you get to meet David Lynch, but um, <laughs> um, but John Ford, you mean? John, yeah. yes. Um, but yeah, this film this film gave me like didn't give me any reassurances about like my material prospects, but it gave me like hope in a sense of like the, the like the impetus to create art and how that's not that's not uh, without merit on its own yeah cool cool um oh yes so moving on to harrison's number three film which is also my number four film we have the batman okay <laughs> so i got gotta take this slow real quick i want to yeah. make sure i say it concisely or how i want to yeah batman as a character is like a horrifying concept of he is like this emotionally insecure billionaire generational wealth baby mm-hmm. nepo baby <laughs> and he uses his billions to hoard military technology and collaborate with the police in order to um beat up homeless people conserve the status quo of Gotham City and I think we have a very long, long streak of Batman movies that absolutely do not interrogate this whatsoever. And, you know, they're kids' movies, yeah. right? But, but ever, I don't know, okay. So once Nolan takes over, Batman's seen as like this adult property, right? Mm-hmm. Not really, but kind of. Yeah. And it's. It's seen by, as, I mean,. Those movies are in the seen. age of comic book movies becoming less serious than those ones, it's definitely seen as a very serious thing, I would say. Yeah, okay. So, the thing is that, like, Nolan's Batman movies, I mean, they're fun, but I think they're, like, politically terrifying. Again, The Dark Knight's about, like, Joker's ISIS, Batman's George Bush. <laughs> Batman defeats I, George Bush. Batman defeats ISIS by turning America into a high security surveillance state. Yeah. And then it's like it's for the greater good, though. Yeah. And it's like I can't. Be, I'm. I don't want to rant about the Dark Knight. That's why the Dark Knight like, Rises is the best. I'm like so surprised that there hasn't been any reevaluation of the Dark Knight recently. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, for me, I actually I. Think this is my favorite Batman film. I prefer it over the Dark Knight trilogy. Yeah. This is this. No, is, me too. Yeah. And okay. 
if we see Batman as George Bush, this actually carries on into the Zack Snyder Batman. <laughs> where oh, I like. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm like a reformed Zack Snyder hater. Yeah. But, like, you know, that movie literally opens with, like, 9-11 happening. Superman. Yeah. <laughs> it hits Superman the Superman does 9-11 in, that, in Batman v Superman. Well, I guess in... In, in, in Man of Steel. Yeah. In yeah. Man of Steel. And Batman is, again, like George Bush. Like, I'm waging the war on terror right now. I'm stopping Superman, who's... Yeah, I don't know. And that movie's a bit more, I think, critical of what Batman's doing here. For sure, yeah. Sending but, people into jail to die. Yeah. <laughs> like, Batman is a very dark character in that movie. Yes. Yeah. But, yeah, let's but, okay. Movie. So, but <laughs> that's the thing, is that the history of Batman, you go to this, and I think this is a movie that, like, actually cares to go, like, what the fuck is Batman? Because mm-hmm. yeah. it's this movie, over the course of the movie, Batman, like, discovers that, like, what it means that, like, I'm this billionaire doing absolutely nothing for the world. He is, like, directly responsible for the systemic poverty in his community. Mm-hmm. All the crime that happens in this community is a direct result of his, like, faux philanthropy. Like, I'm donating money to the community. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I don't need to do anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is, like, he's coming to terms with, like, the... Just... In- massive influence he has over the world and how little he's actually done for it um uh the riddler in this movie yeah played by paul dano i think this might be the one misstep is that i don't know if they should have cast paul dano to be like no 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 no. well no if paul dano's supposed to represent like the downtrodden lowest class yeah. Of Gotham, they probably shouldn't have cast like the whitest boy on earth. Eh. I also think I think he's uh, does good performance when the mask is on, and then when the mask comes off, he's just absurd. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. He's a Batman villain <laughs> at that point. It's, it's hard to say, yeah. but yeah, not a good one in my opinion. But anyway, yeah. Continue. So I don't know. Um, yeah, you, you right. also have a So yeah, I mean, I I had a very different experience of the re- like why I liked the Batman. So. For me, I always felt a lot of the Batman movies were lackluster in emphasizing his role as the world's greatest detective. I thought this is one of the most like accurate Batman films in the way he takes a case like himself and then I think I think Robert Pattinson did a great job of this. Yes. Analyzing the scene and being able to interpret these things and interpret these clues that we also follow along with them as the story progresses. And I think Roger Deakins said it himself, the cinematography in the Batman is also was actually unrecognized, and I agree. I think there are some amazing shots between the Catwoman on the building, um, especially him as he's flying down from the police headquarters. And also, I do disagree. I think Paul Dano did a good job as the Riddler. No, he's I, good. It's just, I think, miscast, maybe. I, I think um, Paul Dano has a legacy of playing very creepy, like, very messed up characters, um, which I just watched Prisoners recently. So, But... Um, he brought something to the Riddler that never has been done before. Like, it brought it, like, this, like, really messed up nature to the Riddler. And, like, see how far, like, he, he can do, like, jokes and gags and clues to, like, lure the Batman there, but never explore, like, a darker side to it. Almost like a jigsaw sort yeah. of thing. No, he's like this fusion of the Riddler from Batman. And the Zodiac like, Killer. Like, Zodiac Killer. Yeah. He does, like, saw traps from the <laughs> Saw movies. Mm-hmm. 
But it's also three hours. In, there's, I like that. There's scenes that are references to like Michael Myers and Halloween. He's just like this weird hodgepodge. I, I would say I will say the first scene where he just like beats a guy to death in his house is kind of terrifying. <laughs> like where he just he's just standing there and then he just like and then like the murder. See the glint to his glass. Right, okay, that was the thing about the Riddler. I forgot to say is that like the Riddler is like this terrorist doing political violence. He's killing all the politicians systematically one by one. But I don't think the movie's like saying that he's wrong for doing that. He's like been put in a position where he's been downtrodden his whole... I don't know. It's like this weird incel thing. I feel like the movie makes... No, they're definitely saying, like... I think one of the lesser parts of the movie is that they could have done that, but instead they made it like a, you know, domestic terror... Yeah. The whole domestic terror... Everyone's scared of the Proud Boys now. They made it a Proud Boy a little bit. That, That is a thing. Uh, I, I, I disagree. I, 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 I mean, I mean the whole fact that they're on like a secret, and it's all a bunch of white guys, and they all have guns, yeah. and they're all like no, no, good no. buddies online. Like that's just that's what it is. And it's like, and I don't, I don't necessarily just like, and I think they make him even if you disagree with that interpretation, they make him way too creepy for him to be. Yeah, no, it's like it's like a tight line. Not necessarily I'm, that they had to make him. A good guy. A good guy. I right. don't think that would be useful, really. I think there's yeah. more to explore with this film. Because a lot of stuff does happen with its runtime. And I think you could analyze just how... I mean, I disagree. I don't think it's like a Proud Boy shit. But it's like... Yeah. Oh, I mean, it, it, it totally 100% there's is. reasoning, but also discrediting to the Riddler's actions. And also like to exposing Batman for the monster that he is. And how he is almost mimicking the villains that he beats down. I so would there's say, more to it. Yeah. I would say, honestly, my main... Like I, I, I thought it was fine. I had a fun time with it. I would say the main, my main reason that I found this movie to be kind of inert as like a critique of Batman or anything or or something like that is because like it takes a lot of it does like things where it's like it's like plot twist. The police and the politicians are corrupt. I remember and that. Yeah. Like, yeah. And it was like, well, what are well, we? Well, I, I just, for again, if, wouldn't know that. And it, like, but we like I went like we all. This, this is a this is a. Batman movie. It's a noir movie. We mm-hmm. go into it kind of expecting that to be the case, mm-hmm. and then when it's just yeah, I think Colin Farrell's. I'm sort of. Mm-hmm. I'm a little on your side there in the sense that like, I think what I I love a lot of the stylistic choices of this film. It's us uh, like amazing, and I love the idea of making Batman a fucking weirdo, incel, yeah, like Robert loser. Like I like that. Like, Best I like Bruce the fact Wayne that I, I like the fact that he's standing outside of Catwoman's window, looking from afar and like breathing yeah. heavily to himself right. as he sees the, yeah. he sees her undressed. Yeah, he's, he's also like very mentally ill. Just like the, the scenes of him, I like the scenes of him just as Bruce Wayne. Like we don't get a lot of that in this movie. Yeah. But and like, I like and I like you know it's kind of fun sometimes when they do some silly stuff like you know he fucking paints on his floor. Oh right, yeah. That. But like I like yeah, it. I think the film is. Ultimately, what I felt, I, I kind of agree with you. I think it's less, a little less than the sum of its parts. It's like, right, yeah, the okay. police are corrupt, but guess what? Here well, are the good cops here to arrest. Them. <laughs> well, I don't think that, like, whoa, the police and politicians yeah. are bad is supposed to be a surprise for us. It's a surprise for Batman. Yeah, the, yeah the, the pop culture icon Batman realizing that everything about him is just evil. Right, but in the end... That's the thing really where, well, that's the thing is, it's like, it sets up the sequel, and this, and I have no idea how to follow that up, because this movie establishes that, like, philanthropy does nothing. 
So, like, what else is he supposed to do? I would say, yeah, I would say that this movie would have been better if they had made it smaller in scope and not, like, all right, well, spoilers, I guess, but all, and not, like, all right, like, all of Gotham is in danger and Batman needs to, like, save everybody from, like, dying in a flood, like, and I think if it had been, like, smaller and smaller in this, like, you could you still have the same plot, like, that deals with, like, the legacy of the Wayne family, like, and, like, the deep corruption that runs deep in this, and you can still have all of that, like, every bad movie has that to some extent, um, but if they had just made it, like, not, all right, and now, <laughs> and now the end of the world <laughs> is upon us, and the National Guard has to step in, yeah, um, yeah. So the, the same problem to be to be fair, the same problem plagues the Nolan Batman movies. Yeah, too. I, it looks really good though. It's yeah, well, a, and slick in the way it's well, I mean that's that, <laughs> no, I mean I that in the best way possible. I was movie like, looks the back half of what I had to say is that compared to every other superhero movie that's come out, like ever, straight up, this movie like actually looks like like a movie. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it has this. It has a big budget, and it used it to buy a good cinematographer <laughs> and a good composer. Yeah. Instead, um, <laughs> and I think. Is this Silvestri? No, no it's, it's uh, Giacchino. Yeah. Um, which is the which is the Empire theme as Batman's theme. Yeah. yeah. And um, I think visually, it resembles a comic book. It does more than any other like MCU movie. But that's why I, that's why I like it so much. Yeah, well, well, the thing about like, some, like Dave Gibbons level. The thing about like looking like the comics, people when that happens, people think of like the fucking disaster, like double sp- double page splash things of like, whoa, there's a hundred characters mm-hmm. on the screen right now, and they're all colorful and jumping towards something. I think Batman feels like a comic book. On more of a panel by panel basis, it resemb like it remind me a lot of Frank Miller, Tim Soleil Batman art, mm-hmm. and he's like striking a pose. Frank Miller Batman, otherwise known as even more right wing. Well, the, the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. He no, he's that Frank Miller Batman's the pinnacle of like what is Batman? Mm-hmm. He's evil. But um, but, he Frank, likes, but, but Frank Miller. Like, yeah, <laughs> Frank, <laughs> Frank Miller didn't mean to do that. It kind of happened on accident. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's very funny. What was I saying? Good movie. Yeah, I don't know. Batman striking a pose in every single shot of the movie. That mm-hmm. is comic art right there. Mm-hmm. I, there, I are, there are parts where it makes you like read things on the screen, which isn't unique to comic books, but it felt like the X Men comics I'd been reading at the time. Uh, I don't. I don't know. It's it, it's heavy use of silhouettes. Mm-hmm. It just finish it off, Drew. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. I mean, I I just think like everyone agrees. Harrison demonstrated it. Everyone go see it. Universally acclaimed by all of us. But universally acclaimed. acclaimed. Yeah, no, we we all recommend it. I would. I like. I, it. I would recommend it. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Sure. I like, definitely are good. It, it I makes think me... it remains a comic book film, and it's right. So it's difficult to get out of. There's only certain things you can do with it. I'm just excited for what happens next with Matt Reeves. Well, I don't know. I do th- within the confines of its genre. And Zoe Kravitz is very hot. In this yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but within the confines of its uh, its genre, I feel like this is about as good as we're gonna get at this point. And I wish more movies were trying to be like the Batman instead of like Deadpool or Spider-Man: oh, yeah. No Way Home. No, I. I if we can get a movie to do we would, it'd be a, a better version of this movie, I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I think we can move on now yeah. to, which is, it's my number three film, but I don't want to talk too much about it because I already did a podcast on it with Luke. Uh, it's Puss in Boots Puss and Swish. So, <laughs> uh, I'll just quickly say the summary. It's about Puss in Boots from the Shrek universe, and he basically, he oh. dies, but cats have nine lives, which is canon in this universe, and he retires and tries to live out his life. Uh, but he hears about rumors of a wishing star, so he goes on a journey to actually win his uh, nine lives back. So he you should say he has one life left. He does have one life left. Thank he's you. On he's, on he's on his last. He's on his yeah. very last life, life, and he's like prescribed be like stop adventuring, like the legend must die. Um, but I, I just, I love the animation. I think the story, despite it being, or no, with it being an hour and like forty two minutes, crams a lot of stuff in really well. The pacing is, like. Uh, astounding the voice acting is great um, and I think despite it being in production hell if for like 11 years it, it, was, it turned out amazing yeah and yeah it's it's a sequel to a spin-off of a sequel so I think like that combination alone does not make it possible for this movie to be as good as it is but I think everyone I recommend it to go check it out if you're, if you're missing spider-verse style animation which I think this um, was definitely inspired by We've got more movies coming out soon as well that I think you're going to look to this and say, like, we should do more stuff like this. Um, so, yeah, a movie added to the compendium of new age animation that people are going to be inspired by. Yeah. And go listen to their podcast. We won't talk no, about it. No, I was I listened to that. I was impressed that, like, you just started talking about, like, the origins of myth or whatever. It's true, though. <laughs> and, I, true. and I was like, whoa, this is getting way more into the weeds than I thought it would but that is a tangent so it's ranked good. higher than the seventh seal by the way on their yeah. box so. <laughs> so the pod is good so just listen to that yeah, go we'll, we'll, we'll move on to that one perfect because yeah. we, they've talked about great that length. well I just wanted to say about Puss in Boots is that it's just a great adventure movie yes and all the characters have arcs, fun. which for a children's movie is nice. Best villain of the decade. You know, Mario can't say the same uh, mm -hmm. and also it's like it's it has so many like Sergio Leone references in it, <laughs> yeah. which really tickled me. I would say uh, the one. <laughs> he's yeah, I don't know. I would uh, say the one. The, yeah. one <laughs> the, the, the one. The one critique. I forget if I've said this on the podcast. But the one critique I have of it is that the villain played by John Mulaney is just. You, I can't not hear John Mulaney doing the, the voice. That's why you need to just hire actual voice. Same actors. thing with Spider Ham though. I mean, he just yeah. kind of does what he does. But Spider Ham is like a minor character and, in Spider Man. And he's supposed to be a ham. He's hamming. He, he's hamming yeah, it true. up. He's a cartoon. Very, character. Uh, this, this was only on Flex. I watched his new, John Mulaney's new special, which is kind of funny. Anyway, okay. right. After yeah. Sun. I'll, I'll move on. This is PJ's number two film, After Sun, which also no one else had on their list. I need because I haven't seen it. Yeah, and I need to watch it. I've, I've seen it. Okay, so After Sun is directorial debut. Yes. From director Charlotte Wells, it is about a young girl and her very also very young father, played by Paul Mescal. Young girls played by Frankie Corio. Um, the film is just about their a little vacation they took one time to Turkey. Um, where they just got to hang out together for, you know, however long. Um, and it's just her memories of that, um, occasionally interwoven with, um, have you seen it? Okay, but you know what your sister's reaction was to it. Yeah. Occasionally interwoven with, sometimes you see uh, the daughter grown up, and she's, you see her both 
what seems like dreams of hers and her living her real life. Um, and so what the film, I think what really drew me to the film initially the first time I watched it was that when you hear that sort of film being brought up, I think what you immediately think of is that this movie is going to be about trauma, you know, because that's what every single, a lot of indie films these days are about that, like view my trauma that happened to me. Um, and I think what's so interesting about this film is that, and what makes it so much more emotionally resonant is that it's not about that. It's, it's what it's instead is, it's like a person reflecting on this memory that they have with a relative who may or may not be around anymore. Um, and they're thinking about all these things that happened when they were there, like all the joys and, you know, all the little conflicts that they had with them. And they're thinking about, you know, when they saw them, when no one was looking, and the way that their face looked, and if they saw, you know, maybe some tinges of despair that they wouldn't share with them normally because they're just a kid. Um, and it's then within these little intercuts with her as an adult and how there are some parallels between their lives, um, it's sort of, she's thinking about how she feels in her life at this time and how her father felt because she's like now the same age and but it does it all visually which I think is what makes it most spectacular it doesn't give you anything it doesn't there's no like there's no monologue of characters saying how they feel no one says how they feel at any point in the movie it's all extracted visually and even in some incredibly unique ways throughout the film like there's one amazing 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 shot of there's so throughout when they're on this trip they have one of those old you know like digital cameras camcorders that they're filming stuff on their vacation mm. and there's a shot where you know they plugged in the camcorder to the TV and they're watching back some footage on the TV in the hotel room and there's a mirror behind the TV and the camera's pointed at from an angle at the TV in the mirror and so at first the shot is showing the footage on the TV and they're watching it and they're talking and then he turns off the camcorder um, so it's not on the TV and so you see them through both the reflection in the, the black TV screen and the mirror behind them and the shot itself and it's I've never seen a shot like that it's unbelievable um, mm -hmm. And there's another, there's another shot that I think is also really powerful, which is they get like a, you know, like a Polaroid picture taken of them at their resort they're staying at. And, you know, they get the picture taken of them and they're sitting at their table at, you know, at dinner. And, you know, he puts the picture down and, and as they continue talking, the camera just stays focused on the picture as it's developing. And it's like this idea of like, you're sitting there watching, like, what, because we've seen this older version of the kid now, you're, you're watching, like, a physical memory of hers, like, a connection to her father, like, develop in real time. I don't know, it's just, I don't know if you have, you want to say anything about it, Harrison, as the other person who's seen it. Yeah, I mean, my thoughts going in kind of echoed what you were saying, I was like, great, 
another A24 therapy movie. Yeah. About it seems you know, like it's gonna be that for you know people to say like it made me cry so hard and, and this is a movie where I think actually it's like I wish I could just have completely siloed myself off from everybody else talking about it mm -hmm. because people were responding to it like one as well. So I think I let that influence me and knock it down a little bit. But obviously, like you said, the cinematography is genius yeah. at times. It, it has the great best. use of reflections. Yeah. And um, again, it has, it's just, it has the best final shot. Right. You have to inter movie. interrogating your own memory, which is like impossible. Mm -hmm. And shots like the one you've described, or again, it's like I have to like really like try and look hard to even remember, like, what was my father doing at that time? Yeah, yeah. And I think, like, it's sort of the idea of, like, watching it a second time. First time I was, like, it didn't really make me emotional. I was just, like, this is, like, it's, I recognize it for, like, a fantastic piece of art. Yeah. It was, as you guys were talking about with, like, Banshees, like, you know, surface level. Um... And the second time you watch it, it's just like, I think what becomes so powerful about it is, like, the fact that Charlotte Wells has the confidence and the wherewithal to tell this story in such a, like, so visually, like, because, you know, if you try to include scenes of, you know, intellectualizing or psychologizing anything that's happening it you immediately kill what like you kill the ambiguity of the film and you kill like the connection between the, the event the, the events in the past which is like on almost all of the movie and sort of when it cuts to you know the other scenes um, and it makes the like the, the ending of the film so much more powerful and I think it's just remarkable that this film exists that from a debut director to make a film with so much like just technical brilliance technical brilliance yeah. but then like 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 Edward Yang is like my favorite filmmaker right. and I think what makes him unique is both I think both his editing but like the ability to tell like to relate subconscious emotional experiences completely visually and I think the fact that Charlotte Wells has created a film that can do that in her first attempt ever is unbelievable and I, you know we can also say like Paul Mescal's performance is yeah. really good Frankie Coro, Corio who plays the daughter is spectacular um, but yeah it's it's an amazing film I'm really I'm looking forward to what Charlotte Wells puts out Absolutely. after this yeah yeah yeah, I also I was also covering my ears in the beginning, but I realized I had to edit this, so I'm gonna hear it anyways. Um, well, you can, I have a .mkv file of After Sun if you want to watch it. Well, I, I'm, I'm it was good it. conversation, so you don't need to trim it. Okay, okay cool. <laughs> um, but I think yeah, I'm definitely gonna watch After Sun. It's been on my radar. Just I need to be emotionally prepared for it. But 
Um, I think it's a good time to move on to Luke's number two film, which is Warm Bloods. Or Warm, Warm Blood. Blood. Warm Blood. Yeah, how many people <laughs> saw Warm Blood? Not me. <laughs> Nobody saw Warm Blood. Uh, if you saw it, you, I think, I mean, I guess it's, it's, been, it's had a few screenings since when I saw it at SIF. It had a screening recently um, in Modesto, where the film is shot and takes place. And that apparently, was, I follow the film's like, account on Instagram, and that apparently was a very fun time. Everybody in Modesto showed out for it, because, like, like everybody starring in this film is just like some random people like either friends of the people making it or random people they got to be in it um the main actress is from modesto um for everyone's information only 162 people have seen this movie on have logged have to log it on letterboxd yeah i was i was there from the very beginning <laughs> you were one of them i was one of the uh, te- technically i saw it at the second screening so i'm like I'm one one degree away from being a true OG, but I. So you should definitely explain what. Yeah. So this. So for, yeah. It's. I mean. It's like to true. Like to truly try and summarize the movie, I think it would be very hard. But I think to introduce just to introduce it and sell you on it, it's a. I don't know what genre I put it in, but it's a very free form film that is kind of just following a character Red as she returns to her hometown as of Modesto after being a runaway for a couple of years. She's pretty, like, young. She's probably in her mid-20s, maybe, maybe still even early 20s at this point. Um, and the film kind of opens, like, the film opens with her, like, stealing a car and then, like, almost getting arrested and running away, like, and then the rest of the film is her just kind of drifting around, getting into various situations in Modesto. It's set, oh, also, it's set in 1988. Um, though they don't do a lot of set dressing because I don't think anything much, I don't think much has changed in Modesto since, since that time. I think it kind of goes into that. Um, and the film is simultaneously an exploration of her, like, psyche as she goes through this. We hear recordings that she made as, like, a child when she was doing, like, therapy when she was still living with her parents, like, played over as she's, like, still walking around the town now. Um, and it's also kind of a movie that it gestures toward, it, it does, it's it still, it's always anchored in the experience of Red, but it's, it's definitely gesturing toward just this deep rot on, at the edges of, like, American society. Um, like, there's, they, they, I, I forget if, like, Ronald Reagan appears in the film at all. Or like, or like, like a Ronald Reagan quote or something that in the film at all, but they've like advertised the film with like quotes from Ronald Reagan. Um, it's very, very uh, like dark and depressing sometimes, but and in a very, but again in just like this really casual way, just like showing you stuff. And um, I should also mention that it's a combines both like narrative uh, filmmaking with doc with documentary filmmaking because some shots there were a few times where I could like easily tell but sometimes I couldn't very easily tell where there are there's a lot of footage that's just stuff they went into Modesto and just shot on like when they were there like um like there's there's one time which is one scene which I'm pretty sure is like just they just happened to be there which is like there's a band playing at this like gas station parking lot and none of the actors in the film are in that scene but there's just a scene of this band just playing there um and they're and getting to hear, and also getting to hear like the filmmakers talk about it because I saw it at SIF was very fun. They like talk about like being like really high. They were all they all took like shrooms and got high while filming one scene, and then the cops showed up, so they all had to like pretend like they were all really cool. And then and then they got the cops to like beat in the scene. Wow. Um. So yeah, a lot a lot of it's like really impromptu, really 
comes together, which makes sense because Rick Charnowski, the director, comes from a background of doing like skateboarding films. Mm. Okay. Um, even but like even before like now when you can do that very easily with you know with smaller cameras, you can upload to YouTube. He was doing it like back when you were still doing like film cameras and stuff. This movie shot on film, also I should say. Is there like a specific reason why it's like, your number two film though? Just because it was my number one for, until <laughs> until I saw a certain film, which I'll we'll talk right, about okay. in a minute here. But um, I would say combination of it's a film that appeals to a lot of my sensibilities as not as a film watcher, but as a filmmaker, mm. uh, like just, a, just a, a desire to just go out and shoot stuff and kind of bring it all together. Um, so as long, as long as you're working with that, with a vision for what you want to show the audience, then no matter what you're doing, if you're, if you have that strong vision, you can kind of pull it through. And I think that's, that's pretty clear in the, the filmmaker's intentions here. Um, and also it's just like, yeah, it's. <laughs> I was hoping it'd be my number one, because then I could be like the ultimate pretentious, like a film you've never seen before. It's my number one. Um, but we need more pretentious people. We do. Yeah, I, and I'm sad. I'm sad I couldn't be that person. So, but it's number. Yeah, but only number two. Only number so. two. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I I want more people to. I I man, I want to like reach out to the directors and let them know like, hey, is this film gonna be like online? Can I watch it like? VOD or anything like that anytime soon, like, I, because I really want to watch it again, I'd really like to show it to some of my friends, because it's, uh, I want to see it now, I mean, it sounds interesting, just because, like, if it had that much of an impact on you, mm-hmm. I want to, like, see Yeah, I remember, it. like, yeah, like, the the like the, light, the lights went up in the theater after it was over, and, I, and like, I just kind of, just, like, hmm. oh, that's the, that's the I didn't, I didn't want to get up, Yeah. like, I, I wanted to just sit there, like, the credits weren't even that long, because, like, I think, <laughs> like, if if you if you subtract just like the number of people credited who just were like in scenes that they just like they went there was like hey you want to be in the scene if you subtract all the people like that I think the credits would be like less than a minute long but they very nicely credited like everybody who touched this film in one major small way or another yeah. also very funny in some scenes there's there's some very very funny moments also um, but we'll talk about the funniest movie of the year okay. <laughs> in a second sounds cool all right then I guess we can move on to Harrison. Uh, number two film and PJ's number three film RRR. So RRR, um, it's a film that attracts a lot of hyperbole when you're talking about it. It is a very hyperbolic. Film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's. I found it's very challenging to find like good faith criticism of RRR. So I'll try and do my best. I'll send you an article. I read. A, I read an interesting article about it a while back. But uh, anyway. <laughs> Part of what it's makes right it's just an exercise in relativity for me. For mm-hmm. India, this is like the most expensive movie ever made. It costs less than like Renfield. <laughs> and it just makes one wonder, like, what are we spending our money on <laughs> stateside? Licensing <laughs> famous songs. That's the, <laughs> yeah. the budget for a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, RRR. Um, the plot, it's like historical fiction. If you can yeah. call it historical, I don't know. But it's two... To some extent, they're, re- they're technically real-life characters. Yeah, yeah, because they are inspired by two real-life... You wouldn't know it if you weren't familiar with uh, the, like, mythology and... Not mythology, because they are, like, like, they're very, like, from recent historical figures. Mm-hmm. But... I think from an outside from an outsider's perspective, I don't. It's I think it would be hard to watch this movie. It would be hard to see these characters as like realistic oh, yeah. depictions of people, but they are based on real characters and that are important, like the 
India's like national history. Yeah, so it's these two anti-imperialist revolutionaries in India, and there's this. It has this like complex yet intuitive, epic narrative structure of Beam is one of them, mm-hmm. and he's trying Kamaram to... Beam. Yeah, yeah. Kamaram Beam. He is trying to rescue his sister from... No, not his sister. Or, but, I don't know. It's like, like, so, like, he's a part of a tribe. Right, yeah. And he's, like, the protector of the tribe. That's a right. little girl. So, okay. So, the film... It's during the British Raj. So, like, they're from, the British imperialists yeah. in this film are depicted... Like fucking monstrous violent pedophiles, which is accurate, <laughs> yeah. um, and it's great. Um, and so, Beam's motivation is that the a little girl gets just they just take the girl, yeah, to be like their. Oh, slave. but they gave him a nickel. Yeah, um, and so he's like going to get her back, and then for Rama, the other main right. character, he is like a traitor to yeah. the Indian people because he's like in the British like police force pretty much um and his goal um at least it seems so at first yeah, yeah. and his goal is to like find get, beam. get promoted yeah get promoted like and find basically beam to man. find beam yeah um yeah and but like along the way he doesn't know yeah. that beam because beam is like hiding who he is Right. They become best. They boys. become. They yeah. become. <laughs> best Through an friends. amazing scene in which yeah. they <laughs> save a boy who's like. So there's this big explosion <laughs> of a train on a bridge, and a boy who's fishing, like, gets caught underneath the bridge, and there's like fire everywhere, and they, they come together. By the way, the beam and Rama are just two jackasses. <laughs> And they're super sick. <laughs> and they're just like, so they're like 100 feet away. Yeah, they one's just, on a bridge, one's on the ground. They just go like, they do a couple hand motions. And they're like, yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> they ride a motorcycle and, and a horse. And a horse <laughs> with a rope. They jump off the bridge. With the Indian flag attached, right? Yeah, with like a, it's like a protest, like a, like a, uh, at the, it's like flag. in the in the in the fiction of the movie, it's meant to be like a protest flag, but it, but it no, makes... in real life, it is. Well, oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, and so they have the flag, That's and right. they so they jump off opposite ends of the bridge <laughs> while holding a rope, so that it, they can like, like swing around to the underneath. They get ca- they catch the kid. The guy dips the flag in the water, wraps it around himself, so he can go through the fire without like getting like Burned. Know, singed, and. They save the kid, and now they're best boys. Yeah. And, like, the rest the film after that, that them hanging out, mm-hmm. they fucking, like, they're, like, <laughs> running around together. They're, like, doing pull-ups. Like, like that, <laughs> that scene immediately goes into a montage of them yeah. just being just the, like, the most boys. They're doing squats with each other on yeah. their shoulders. Mm-hmm. Like, they're just boys. Right. And I just, I'd never seen a movie that makes me care about the main characters so fast. Yeah. Beam is introduced, like, capturing a tiger. Oh, we should say they're both introduced. Yeah. To be, oh, okay. Beam oh, yes. is introduced. He's in the middle of a jungle. Yeah. He pours blood all over himself because yeah. he's trying to capture a tiger. <laughs> so he runs through the jungle, like, versus a tiger, and he, like, traps it. <laughs> he's just jacked. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then and then so before that, Rama is introduced, like he's a member of the police force. Right. And like their compound is surrounded by right. like a million two thousand. The entire population of India is yeah. there. And so riot. they're rioting around this little compound that's just like surrounded by barbed wire. Mm-hmm. And like some guy throws a one rock. Random guy. One guy in the middle of the crowd throws a rock <laughs> that breaks the portrait of the king. And the, the British, the white British, like, you know, commandant of this little division yeah. is like, bring whoever brings me that man will, you know, get the promotion. Yeah. yeah. And so he, Rama, literally runs and jumps fence. over the yeah. fence into this crowd of a thousand people, beats all of them. <laughs> literally all of them. Grabs, high, this is not hyperbole. This is not he hyperbole. He beats 1,000 people up. And then he grabs the guy and brings him back. And like while beating people up, while but I think back. it's worth noting that it's like SS Rajamuli. The crowd work is actually like excellent too. It's, it's not just direct. like it's not like oh that's a cool idea, dude fights a thousand guys. It's like it is filmed incredibly. And then he's like he's like he's no, like the, literally the, underneath yeah, like the, seventy like the guys, hordes of guys. And he's just like he's like he's like bleeding <laughs> out of his head. And then like he's like comes to and he's just like. Slowly, <laughs> just starts just like elbowing guys, breaking their wrists, and then all of a sudden he just throws everybody off of him, and it's like it's like oh my fucking god! This is but yeah, it, I don't know. The movie like instantly establishes that both of these guys are like titans. Yeah, they're like super and they young. and they are best friends, which they also establish very fast. But there's this idea that in- inevitably they will throw down. Will yeah. it end in bloodshed? Yeah, which they. There's there's a lot of songs in the movie yeah. that are sung, and they literally <laughs> say like what's happening in a scene, or also they're like they'll like a line in a song will be like, will they fight each other at some point? <laughs> yeah. Used to say, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I'll just say it. They do fight. They do. They yeah. do fight, and it is like the best action scene set piece of all time. Yeah, cause straight so, up. Because Rama's with the police. But what you don't know is that he's secretly with the police because he wants to get he wants to get promoted so he can have control over arm shipments yeah. so that he can deliver them to his village, and who they, has like been training for years to kill the British. Yeah. Um, but they, but he has to. What get you to, learn from seeing his incredibly tragic backstory, where his yeah. dad is killed in battle when, after in killing right, like a hundred British right guys in by front himself. of him. Yeah. 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 Um, and then this is, and he learns to be like an expert marksman. But anyways, like, um, he has to get this promotion, so they have to fight each other. And in this scene, like, he, Beam breaks into the yeah. fucking like royal palace with a truck, with a truck full of animals, who, he releases and they, it's like tigers and fucking yeah. stags, <laughs> leopards, and yeah. bears and shit, and they, just. Ripped to shreds all of the British people. There's, like, yeah, there's a one part where like a leopard runs towards a guy and hits like a wrestling move, like a Canadian destroyer yeah. on yeah. him. He like jumps and like does a 360 and hits him in the mouth. And it's 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 just so, like I what is spectacular about this movie, and I think you know people have said some stuff about there are certainly some like Hindu nationalists. nationalists. Yeah. Politics. The thing is, I can't critique it for nationalism when we just discussed how awesome no, Top specific, Gun is. Specifically Hindu nationalism, oh. in the sense that, like, which is the current mode of government in India right now, which is really bad and violently racist to Muslims. Fascist, yeah. Um, but 
I mean, in the same way that Don't Look Up is a terrible movie, but it's right about climate change, like, this movie that is definitely Hindi, like, Hindu nationalist movie yeah. is still amazing, regardless. Especially because the way it depicts the British people in the movie, they're, like, fucking yeah. the most evil you could possibly be. They're, like, literally comic book, like, like children's movie, like, they're just pure evil. Like, mm-hmm. there's no humanity in them at all. And it's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, if you've seen, like, crowd reactions to this movie, oh, yeah. it, it just, it makes me feel good to think that somewhere out in the world there's a crowd of people watching a movie and they started cheering at, like, character development uh-huh. and shit instead yeah. of just, like, yo, sick. It's an actor I know. Yeah. True. But also, okay, we need to mention this part. It's so the genre of the film is hard to say. Yeah. It's like action movie, but it's also a musical. Romance. Romance. Which is worth noting that like musical is like the default mode of filmmaking in Bollywood, Hollywood. So there's an unbelievable scene in this movie (laughs) in which Beam, because like there's another thread in this movie where like Beam, who doesn't speak any English, like yeah, is like like, trying to get like gets in with this girl who's this white British girl who's like in the palace, and they can't even talk to each other, but like they fall in love with each other. But so he gets invited to this party, and at the party, there's like this pompous white British guy yeah. who's like, I know all the European dances. Yeah. Do you know flamenco? Yeah, and he does them, and all the white people are like, wow, he's such a good dancer. And then, and then they get the one black guy on the band, yeah. because it's like, you know, all the white people in the movie are so evil. Like, the one black guy in the band, they like throw him, they like, he like starts drumming the beat, and then it's a full singing and dance scene from the two main <laughs> characters in which they like they're doing like crazy shit with their suspenders and yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. and it's fully choreographed and then it ends with a comp like a dance competition yeah. in which the two Indian guys defeat the entire white <laughs> population by dancing for longer than them. It's, it's just so yeah. sick. I guess what we've just been is, talking about <laughs> it's just a bunch of amazing action it's really well directed. Yeah. Um, it's basically like it's honestly like the direct in the musical number that plays during the credits. The director is in it. The, in that musical number, just yeah. like alongside the actor being like, "Hey, thanks for watching our movie." <laughs> yeah. it's, it's so good. Uh, yeah, it's a fantastic <laughs> spectacle. Love scene, like just evil pedophile British. Yeah, yeah. Colonialists just get murked endlessly. No, yeah. there's the one shot where it has like. The sun never sets on the British Empire, and, and they spill blood yeah. all over it. Yeah, yeah. And there's like, there's even like really like legitimately like powerful anti-imperialist scenes yeah. in that. Like, there's scenes where like you know he's getting tortured in front yeah. of the crowd, and he's just like staying strong, <laughs> he won't and singing, kneel. and then the whole crowd, and you can see them all just get super angry, and it's like, yeah, I'm feeling that right now, you know. It's, <laughs> it's great. It's yeah. great. But yeah, I mean, as, as a film, it's just a spectacle that Hollywood, except for one man, is incapable of making. Yeah. Speaking of, now, after the second most anti-imperialist movie of the year, right. no, let's no, go no. to the most anti-imperialist no, movie. No, I think, I think two of us have it at number one, so it should go last. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Okay, we can make it go last. I want, I want Tar to go last. <laughs> even, though that's not, even though that's not how it would go at all. It's, well, it's going to go. It's, well, we want to do everything ever all at once right now. Sure. Well, now that we've said it. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, I guess we're going to jump to... We've said all of our number ones at this point. Spoilers. Yeah, I'm gonna, we're going to jump to my number one film. 
Luke's which is also Luke's number six film. Yes. Um, everything everywhere, ev- everything everywhere, all at once. Yeah. So yeah. No! I know that uh, PJ it says it's like an okay film, but for me, this is in my top four of all time, um, mm-hmm. and it's my number one of last year. Last year, yeah. Um, I want to say that I think I I can't really determine why certain films have impacts on me. I think it's just like the emotional reaction that it elicits uh, is sometimes very unique. It can be spontaneous, sudden, whatever it may be. Um, I had a like severe reaction to this film that like really struck me deeply. And I remember like as the, as the movie ended, I've never felt that way about something before. Um, despite uh, someone next to me who I was very, very fed up with. They, they were very racist, by the way, towards the end of the film. Mm. Um, uh, they were saying like what? this is mostly for Chinese audiences, and I was like, "You're like your friend out of your no." It was like an old couple, oh. but sorry, <laughs> I just want to say regard regardless. Um, yeah, I was like in a in a, like a state of emotional turmoil, um, especially whenever I heard uh, Mitski, David Byrne, and Sunlux uh, do that uh, one collaboration song. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a life, I think it's called um, Oscar nominated. Oscar nominated. I mean, this film is the most awarded film in history. It it, it reached that status at the Oscars. But um, I think this film tapped into a very niche emotion that I sort of like. Sort of, same thing with White Noise. Um, like, the overwhelming nature of the world can get, like, really, really heavy, especially on me. And, like, there was something last year that also happened that was, like, very, very intense. But... Uh, yeah, I, I think like this came out at a perfect time um, and really did something I've never felt before. Uh, or, uh, it's able to like intimately pick and choose how the audience should feel and experience really everything. I'm not gonna make the the joke about like you 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 feel everywhere everything all at once, but <laughs> it, it's it it really feels um, like it builds you up to ultimately break you down and then have you get a moment to reflect on just how your life leading up to now really is. So like, all, everyone deals with regret, personal choices, um, various uh, like crossroads you have to make, or, or you have to you meet in your life and you have to make an ultimate choice. And I think that while it's hard, it's even harder to reflect back on it because when you do, those feelings of regret sort of pop up. So I think with this film, um, I just, I remember that uh, I, I, don't, I don't know how else to say it. It's it, it was um, probably the most uh, revealing moment for me in how I sort of grasp the dealings with every day, with other people, and just uh, with myself. So, mm-hmm. it, and a lot of people think like it shouldn't be read this way. Like it's it's not it's not that deep. But I, I think if so many people can at least describe something similar for different reasons, whether it be a first-generation immigration story, mm-hmm. whether it be, um, like, I, I, like I said, for me, it was the overwhelming nature of how we live our daily lives. Um, and then some people just see it as a comedy, which, sure, I, but uh, I completely disagree. I think this was a life-changing film for me that I'll remember for a long time. And I think... The reason it's so hard for me to describe it is because I want to keep it that way. It's hard for me to put into words why I like it so much. It just is what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I would say, yeah, um, a, a bunch of people accuse uh, the Daniels of like trying to 
like d- kind of watered down like an emotion like trying to do an emotional impact with like humor and like like you know reddit reddit humor some people say and when you say um, some people are you saying me? some people no i know because you haven't said that you, well I have said you got well yes I, I didn't want you <laughs> i didn't i didn't want i don't want right, to you didn't talk about reddit humor but i i think that I think that's not necessarily, I mean, the, the Reddit, I think, like, the idea of the Reddit humor is definitely, there. like, it's less Reddit humor, more just, like, kind of humor that the, the that generation of filmmakers has grown up with, the Daniels specifically, but I think that they're, I think that it, I think it comes together in an interesting way, it's, it's not them trying to, it's not them trying to, like, like make sweeten the medicine it's them that is just the, like both of those both both the real the emotional moments and like the moments where they're just doing something for the sake of it being completely ridiculous is them being very personal and you know i think the movie i i i am like you know people who accuse them of being hacks i think they're wrong i i think i agree that the movie's not that's it's, it's not that deep but it's not that radical but it's that's fine. It's a movie. It, like every time I watch, every time I watch it, it still manages to like floor me. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly did the first time I watched it. Um, I think there's a reason why it's enjoyed the success that it has. It's well, incredibly well edited. It's incredibly well shot, done in a very um, way that you that does a lot with very little. Um, yeah, no, I I think that this film. Had definitely left an impact this last year. Uh, yeah, I mean, it certainly resonated with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are parts of it I like and parts I don't, but I don't want to spend any time. Yeah, I, I, I won't. I won't take very long. It's just that the reasons why PJ explained why he likes After Sun, these are the reasons that everything everywhere. I'm a bit soured on it mm-hmm. as time goes on. We don't have to let's not. That's it. That's all I'll say. I think there are a lot of really good parts of that movie. Yeah, there are. I would say, I would say, like, I, 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 because here's the thing I like with me, like, I, I've read a lot of, read read a lot of body of work, both in, both, both uh, praising and critiquing everything everywhere, and I kind of agree with most of it, and then I come back to it, and it still always works as Mm -hmm. a film. And that's, that's, I think that's what, that's, that's the most amazing, the thing that's most amazing to me about this movie is that it works. It, like it, like it breaks so many rules of like how you should tell a story, how you should like the fucking finale goes on for way too like what should be way too long. They keep doing encore after encore after encore, wrapping up story threads, and but it 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 works. It comes together, and I think that in and of itself is impressive. I I think I will say that the ultimate uh, uh, reasoning I can give it as to why it's so powerful is like. Everyone has those those things they just can't really explain. And I think when something is so primal, like when you get a feeling that is like that, which, I, again, I want to reiterate, I've never felt the same way about a film mm-hmm. as I have with this one. Yeah. And take take that with what you will. But uh, it's if it's so indescribable and so impactful to you in that way, why not let it be your number one film? Right. And I think that's just how it is for me. There's no reason you shouldn't. There's no reason anybody should. Yeah. So I, 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 I'll leave it there. It's it's a really good film. I think everyone knows about it at this point. But I think a film, surprisingly, that people don't really know about, I guess in a way. No. Are you kidding and me? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand by that. And I think well, it's... it's it, with every award, 
No, I know the Oscars. It won like no awards. Tar. Everything. Oh, I thought you were talking I'm, about I was, I was doing a transition. Okay. So I you were we're going, we're going from everything ever. I have to say, like, going from everything like, Going from the most <laughs> awarded film of last year. I was like, what are they saying? Hold on, hold on. <laughs> you know, I'm, sorry, you know, sorry, I'm happy for everything everywhere all at once, but... Mm. <laughs> Tar going on with zero awards. This tar, is, tar Nation needs to rise up. We need to make this right. So this is Luke's number one film, which is Tar. And I agree. Number, you and your number, it's your number, number, number five and, and your number, number two. two. Yeah. Um, tar, like, <laughs> I knew basically nothing about Tar going into it, except that Lydia Tar is, in fact, not a real person. <laughs> um, which some people still don't know that after watching the movie. Um, <clears throat> tar is a sort of biopic of a fictional composer, a uh, fictional, very successful composer who, like, Lydia Tarr, who is, like, in the, in the movie is seen as, like, breaking all of these, like, super, like, cool records, not only as, like, being, like, the first woman to compose at all these, like, very uh, well-regarded, like, orchestras and being, like, the head there, but also just as an amazing composer in her own right, doing, like, all of these amazing, like, like earth-shattered, like, she, she won an EGOT winner, as they say, <laughs> Um, and the, so the movie does a very good job of like building up her reputation in the very beginning. Um, and I think the moment I knew that this movie would do something, like would just resonate with me very hard is when I was completely enraptured. I was still, I was completely enraptured with it like six minutes in to an interview scene that's just her talking to, to uh, like a New Yorker reporter. And when I, and I'm having no idea about some of the things they're talking about, like talking about deep cuts in classical music. Um, and, and talking about like Leonard Bernstein, who's not a deep cut in classical music, but who I know of but don't know anything about, and it's like you know, and but I was still watching Cape Blanchett, just like, you know, time is the thing, <laughs> and and then it goes from and then it I'm goes the clock, look at the clock, my hand, I start the clock, yeah, no, it's ah, it's so it's so good. there's so many lines, and then it go goes from that to another scene of her talking with somebody after that go to a scene of her talking with a philanthropist who's like sponsoring like her program to get students to get women students into um, conducting conducting schools um, to and then to a scene of her teaching at uh, Juilliard um, like establishing like who she like who she presents herself as to like the mass audience who she presents herself as to like close people in the industry and who she presents herself as to people she's trying to like impress or teach and like seeing the various things of what she believes um and the end of, of course like that that third one the scene of her teaching at Juilliard is by far one of the best scenes of the year um where it kind of just lays out not only it kind of lays out it does a good job of laying out her thesis on um like Auteur, auteurism and like if we should like take how much we should let into take into account like the lives and actions of people who I make think art. another thing that that scene does is yeah and I th think what the film does largely as well is it sort of pre presents the sort of combustive quality of this liberal Atlantic divide that has emerged between sort of she's like a Gen Xer with boomer tendencies mm -hmm. culturally right um and but you know she works in close proximity to you know the millennial zoomer archetype who have very different ideas about sort right. of what is culturally acceptable mm -hmm. um and then there's because of her strong personality there's you know and her cultural touchstones that she 
holds on to yeah. still, and that maybe even the director says that you should or should not. I think another good part of the film is how ambiguous it is. Yes, um, by far. Like, um, there's an interesting, like, way, the way that he, uh, like, examines that conflict is very interesting. I think what's interesting to me is a lot of, if you look at a lot of the popular reviews from, you know, big time, uh, you know, news outlets, um, they just so miss the mark. Like, mm. like they view the film as either pro-cancel culture or anti-cancel culture. Like people and saying, people saying, people praising Tar as like a, you know, a movie that finally rallies against cancel culture is plaguing yeah. the media when in that movie the central figure who they're all praising is like, um, yeah. Like, and yeah, so I think what the mistake is with that is an identifying, like, Todd Field as being interested in deciding whether or not that is good or bad. Mm-hmm. Like, That's not right. And I think it's pretty clear that he identifies her as, you know, an abusive person. Um, but I think what he's more interested in is in the replaceability of the figures within that. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's this larger system in which she inhabits, which, you know, in this world of classical music, your only way of moving up in that world is by developing relationships. transactional relationships with them. And so all she's done in this milieu is push that to an extent which is clearly too far, but is only an emergence of the conditions she lived in with, within already. And he's way more interested in analyzing her psyche as a person who's emerged to the top of that system right. and what she had to do to do that and how she had to create an identity for herself to do that. Mm-hmm. Almost like, delusion. Like, yeah. The film is kind of like deluding yourself. Right. And even it. like it presents that visually in some mm-hmm. ways. Like there's right. those, like, I never noticed this the first time I watched it, but since hearing about it and then looking for it as it appeared, there are scenes throughout the film where there's just ghosts standing in the backgrounds of scenes. Yes. And it's sort of like, there's all sorts of little details that he does not point out specifically. Which I think is amazing. Yeah. And like, what it does is super subconsciously creates this idea of a delusion like that, that you mentioned. Like paranoia, like slowly creeping in throughout the whole mm-hmm. film. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, but not a fear of people. Like, not a fear. It's like a fear of, like, the self-immolation of this identity you've created. For right. Yourself, you know? Like, what, like, what ultimately, you know, the movie is builds itself as about the downfall of Lydia Tarr. What ultimately causes her downfall is not that she's done these reprehensible things. It's because she kind of, like, pissed off one too many people. Because she, at her core, is a very narcissistic person. Uh-huh. There's one, like, in, in a, there's one scene also relatively early on where she's talking with someone who, like, she obviously has a relationship with, but, like, she's kind of, like, in the public eye, she's kind of, like, he's kind of built herself as, like, her mentor, um, and, and, um, there's a part where he hands her, like, an envelope with, like, a sort of, basically, like, a glowing review, with, like, a glowing review of her book that she wrote, mm-hmm. and she, at first, and she takes tar it, and tar. it's, tar. <laughs> which the film does not, definitely has a sense of humor as well. Yes, yeah, it's, it's again, the, like, you're talking about, like, last shots, I don't know if Tar is the best last shot of the year, has the funniest last the shot most, of the year. It's the most, it made me th- Think about what it meant the most. I think. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but 
so she gets this envelope from this guy, and she's very, she's like, oh, thank you so much, like, and she, and, like, there's actually a, sm- like, there's, like, a smile, like, a very genuine smile on her face, and, like, again, the nuances of Kate Blanchett's performance is, like, she's amazing. I, I think the best performance. The best performance, yeah. like, you know, you know, Michelle, like, uh, Michelle Yeoh, deserving of an Oscar, I'm glad she got for it. For her career. For her, for her, I mean, like, she's, for her. She's good in the movie, obviously, yeah. And also, yeah, also, she gave a good performance, yeah. great performance, deserves an Oscar, but I, but personally, Kate Blanchett gave the performance of the year, and I completely agree. And I think that is completely crystallized in this scene where, uh, and then he's, and then he's like, "You may," and she's like, "Thank you," and he's like, "Yeah, that's for your book. Then you can put that on, like, on like on the covers yeah. and stuff like that." And she's like, "Oh," and then because because she realizes, "Oh, this is just another part of it, like the transactional relationship that I've cultivated." Yeah. And like it's seeing like the ways like she really does crave like attention and love. Um, even though we all know that she's kind of like this monster, um, and like seeing the way she just continually digs herself deeper into this rut that she's in, yeah. um, I think another interesting thing it does in that way is in just like revealing. It never gives you the full picture, but it reveals small things about her identity. Yes, the way that she's constructed her identity that are really like the way. There's a couple moments throughout where like the way that she constructs her, like, mixture of masculine and feminine identity. Like, she'll refer to herself as the father of her child or the husband in her relationship. Right. And, like, she wears this very masculine clothing. She tries to be imposing. Mm -hmm. But then also, and she's, like, very insistent on, you know, the lack of, like, she's very insistent on, like, like in that, that opening interview scene, she's, like, this sort of gender difference was not important to me, which is like, yes. you know, like you think about. She's like, trying to think that she's transcended beyond that because yeah. she's been so successful. Uh huh. Yeah. I don't know. It's just it's super interesting the way that they. And I think that speaks to like, and I think that's again that's something the film gets at. The film definitely believes that she is a, like a terrible person, but it also tackles her as as, but it also is kind of gets into her as like this intoxicating like, like it's she's kind of yeah. cool, right? Like she like seeing you her see like how seeing her happened. confidence, seeing her like just comp- like being being just so sure of herself and go into these situations knowing that like I'm Lydia Tarr and you to me are nothing. Yeah. Um like again, Kate again, this is all sense from yeah, Kate but and sorry you can talk. No, I was saying I was just like chest kiss. Like honestly, like cuz despite all my praise for everything everywhere, like this was easily the hardest decision I had to make of determining. Like I think Tar couldn't number one. Right. If, if it wasn't just for like my desire to put everything everywhere at number. I have yet to watch Tar again in full from beginning to end, but I have probably seen the whole thing at least five times in <laughs> bits and pieces because I've gone back and just watched. Like well, like I watched it with a bunch of friends my my first viewing, and like immediately after we were like, all right, we need to go back and look at some <laughs> look at some things here yeah. and there. Uh, we need to go back. And um, and then after and even after that, I, I, I rewatched the opening interview so many times to the point that I almost know it. I've rewatched the Juilliard scene. I've rewatched like the last yeah. half hour. Um, I think another thing it does it's similar to After Sun in the way that he wants to construct a lot of the he constructs like sort of the larger like the surface level image of Lydia Tarr. Like obviously, there's a lot of like on the surface stuff that you have to do, but like all of these sort of little details that I think reveal that are like key to understanding her psychology and the culture and system that he's, I think he's more interested in yes. 
interrogating are all through these little visual details. Like, I think there's a fantastic, like, um, visual parallel shot that he has, or, I mean, not necessarily one shot, but like, sort of the parallel between the shot at the end in which he's, she is looking at a very different collection of individuals, mm -hmm. in, but situated in the same way that she was in her like, usual in, in, in job. At the Philharmonic, yeah. yeah. And sort of how that reveals the nature of her like boss relationship with, even in like this sort of sanitized, very like, you know, polite to the world world, and now where she has ended up. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think all that, all he's that so, he creates so many, like, it's a very intellectual film, not in the sense that it's like, you know, about really smart things. It's an intellectual thing in that it makes you think about so many mm -hmm. different things, but in a purely visual way, which I think is... Yeah, so, but like, and again, so much of this, like, it's so much of this movie is successful because no one ever comes out and says what the movie is about. All the dialogue is yeah. just characters talking to each other and talking about what situations they're in and about each other. And mm -hmm. it's just so believable in that way. The last two things I'll say about it, unless somebody has something to say, no, okay. okay, is that, because uh, I, I, I could go on, I, on, on, I mean, honestly, after I've rewatched this, after I finally rewatched the whole thing again, I, I would love to do a podcast on it, but last two things I'll say, one, as you've mentioned earlier, deeply, deeply funny movie, um, like, I, I, I would stop short of calling it a black comedy, but it's definitely, there are so many moments where it's just, when she face plants after, like, the that song the fact that that song didn't get nominated for an Oscar again criminal uh, but speaking of songs the other thing I wanted to mention was the soundscape for this movie obviously a lot of the soundtrack is really good but the fact that there's not that much of it is makes it yeah. more impressive so many scenes are just silent and I think that's another thing that impresses me is how confident it is is just like letting you just watch things happen and it creates not, a very sterile world yeah. outside of what she does not accompanying it yeah. with many stylistic yeah. Uh, you know, audiovisual elements. Um, yeah. It's a modernist world in which she drives a, a fancy electric car in her right. house. Is, yeah. you know, that's just what sleek Berlin, concrete. That's just what Berlin is like. Yeah, um, so, <laughs> yeah. No, Tard is probably. I have a I have a waiting period on my top ten films of all time list of one year <laughs> after I see a movie. Yeah. Tar is currently on that list. Yeah. It is it's spectacular. It's spectacular. Yes, yeah. amazing. I think like. Just to close out, like the discussion on Tar, like if if there's any movie I can recommend, probably besides Everything Everywhere, almost everyone will unanimously agree that tar. it's Tar. Like you have to see this film. But I know that two people have some movies that they think are better. Man, I didn't even get to say anything about Tar. This is you can talk about something about Tar. Yeah, it wasn't. Well, I just you know, Todd Field very famously the protege of Stanley Kubrick, right? I mean, he's eyes wide shot, yeah. <laughs> Not really. Okay. Uh, he no, talked. He, he talked, but he talked with Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, like he definitely is influenced by. But I don't know. It's I. I felt like I saw a lot of that type of, uh, that Absolutely. style like yes, resurrected on the screen was pretty awesome. I, yeah. Like one thing Todd Field has surprised me is that he's like he did he hasn't done a movie in like nearly two decades, yeah. and um, <laughs> the thing he said that like he the thing he said that kind of influenced a lot of his craft. In, on this film is that in the intervening year he's done a lot of commercials yeah. and he's like I learned more about do, from filmmaking doing those commercials than I did about making those films earlier yeah. so I, I thought that was kind of funny and I also like uh, 
I wonder how, if that relationship with Kubrick at all influences the obsessive artist narrative yeah. of Tar. Mm -hmm. that's Definitely. That's actually, that's, actually, that's actually very interesting. Yeah. I, I, it was very funny to learn that, not very funny, it was interesting to learn that this was not like an idea he had the impetus for on his own. He was approached to write a script about a lesbian conductor by a company. Not, nothing else attached to that, I think. And he wrote this script and after the end of it was like, there's no way they're gonna fucking make this movie. And they were like, all right, we love it, we're gonna make this movie. And there was like, fuck. <laughs> um, so, uh, like, he, I, I think he was definitely drawing on his thoughts on autism and stuff like that. And, I'm, and I would be surprised if Stanley Kubrick hasn't influenced his thinking there. Yeah. 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 Ultimately, Lydia Tarr did nothing wrong. All right, so I think we can move on to the number one movie for PJ and Harrison in my number nine film. It is Avatar The Way of Water. Yeah. Very good. So I think PJ and I, I feel like we've arrived at the same position from different uh, perspectives. So PJ can go first. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I guess um, I will just say that I think Avatar, so I'm a huge fan of the original Avatar. Um, I think it's a masterpiece in blockbuster filmmaking in and of itself. But then I think it's also unbelievable that the biggest movie of all time is this unrelenting, specifically anti-American, anti-imperialist film about how you have to give up your life in an act of revolutionary violence against the state to save the environment. Um, and about how sort of our notion of American, just the ideology that we can't extract ourselves from of capitalist abstract, extraction, even if you know, you've sort of delved into sort of more leftist ideals like you, you just grew up in this milieu and so he like examines that as a psychosis you know like a literal psychosis um, but I think what this film what's so amazingly remarkable about this film is that it's I in my opinion I think it surpasses the, the first film yeah. in every way and I think it's remarkable that in and of itself that the first movie is this original original IP that he created um, and looked so spectacular was the biggest movie of all time, and then instead of like any other move, any other person who would have made that, you know, pumping out a sequel in, in three years, he took thirteen years to perfect like his idea of visual technology that makes this movie look have better visual effects than any other movie ever by a, a on a different paradigm. It's yeah. not even close. Like it looks unbelievable. Um, uh, and yeah, I, we can go through the plot, but if you want to talk about your perspective at least a little yeah. bit first. Well, the thing for me is that, like, I'm an environmental scientist. This is my career. Um, as, a, as a freshman. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, it's my, I'm <laughs> going, I'm going for it. I'm yeah. going for you're it, and it. I'm yeah. very passionate about it. Yeah, yeah. And this movie. Um, environmental conservation is maybe my greatest passion in the world. Mm -hmm. Other than the movies, baby. <laughs> uh, and James Cameron just gets it. He's yeah. like the he's the only like environmentalist filmmaker, at least at his scale, which there is no scale other than James Cameron. Yeah. Um and the first avatar is designed to like 
it makes you love nature. It just like brute force makes you love nature. Mm -hmm. And it does that with a really alien world that it's like, it's hard not to love a world where everything glows and the mountains fly in the air and there are dragons and stuff. Mm -hmm. But what makes the way of water even more powerful to me is that I think it's half in part because he advanced the, the technology so much, but Pandora is so much more like Earth in this movie, in the location that they yeah. go to with the the Metkayina. Mm -hmm. uh, that's right, I just remembered an Avatar name, everyone. Uh, <laughs> oh, I know them all. <laughs> yeah. So they go to the ocean, and there's this great scene where the kids, the solely children, they jump into the water for the first time and start swimming around, and they just see coral, and they see seaweed, and they see fish, these are all things that you can go and see in the real world if you choose to seek them out. Yeah. And I mean, another great scene is uh, Kiri, Sigourney Weaver, is just sitting in the sand, like face down, and just watching as it falls in her fingertips. If you don't mind, I think I'd like to just like go through the film. Yeah, yeah go, so, go ahead. Like, so, good. so we can start. So the film opens. So another thing that this, has, this film has an advantage of in terms, in relation to the first one, is that it doesn't have to explain. It and it chooses. Yeah. It very aptly chooses not to explain up, what this off. type of movie is. You know, because like the first one, you kind of have to do that. Yeah. Exposition. This one, it just plot just starts. You know, and you know, it's many years later. Jake Sully and Natiri, they have a family, um, and they're still um, like they have a family. Like you know, the world has moved on a little bit, and then all of a sudden they see. The humans are back, and the scene in which the humans come back is yeah. unbelievable. It's like, it's almost like this sort of like devilish birth scene in which these giant arcs, like, land on on Pandora. They just instantly terraform the planet, yeah. and it's just a baptism of fire. They're just obliterating square miles of of like beautiful jungle and. You know, you see all the animals that were so heavily featured in the first film, like, screaming and running away as, like, giant mech suits and giant fucking bulldozers just obliterate everything. Um, and, like, what that does is it, encapsul it, it like, encapsul encapsulates, like, the sort of destructive nature of humanity that we get from the first film, and it just, like, that's the base level. We understand that, and we get into... And then after that, it sort of goes into, you know, Jake Sully's doing his whole, um, you know, they're doing sort of like revolutionary terrorism. Yeah. Um, and what we also learn is that the villain from the first film, Colonel Miles Quaritch. That's right. Um, who, played by Stephen Lang, who is unbelievable as a villain, mm -hmm. um, has been reborn as in an avatar body because they held on to like his soul the military <laughs> why like, so blue yeah. <laughs> and so him and his whole squad are back because they want like the military because like the, another thing that this movie has different stakes because the first movie it's all about just pure extraction they just want the fucking minerals that are under the tree and they want to you know because it's worth billions of dollars and they just want to take it back but now what this film is about is how humanity has obliterated Earth. And this mission is a complete... Pandora is going to be Earth 2. That's yeah. their idea. And so, like, 
there's no yeah so and the stakes are so much higher in that sense and then so what Jake Sully comes to realize is like you know Quaritch who has the same mission like if if he keeps doing what he's doing like there's just they're never going to stop coming after him they're never going to stop destroying this world so he like escapes and goes to the Metcaina as you yeah. say and the amazing part about this film is that for the middle, it's th- over it, yeah. three hours. There's like the 90 minutes. The middle hour of the film, nothing happens. You just hang out at this beautiful, like, this water world, you know, mm-hmm. where, like, they, they meet the sea people, they meet the Mechaina who are, like, you know, they, the have, fish the, they have longer tail, they have thicker tails and thick wrists and shit that, like, make them more able to... S- to swim and like you just hang out with them for like an hour in mm-hmm. the middle of this movie and nothing happens all that happens is you see fucking Loak who's like the like another thing about this film you can say because it's a big blockbuster film and because I think what James Cameron is wants to do is he needs to get his message across and he's so good at making blockbuster films yeah. and like feeding into those knowing when to use tropes and things like that because you have to and those like he's trying to create mass media and yeah. be able to get so there's like you know all of the characters are pretty archetypal so like you know you have the older brother who's like the good guy the good boy yeah like he does everything right and then the younger brother Loak who's like like he can't do anything right he's the fucking and then but he becomes friends with a tulkun yeah which is a like this species of hyper intelligent whales in in this world who, like, this tribe, they're all friends with, and they, like, sing songs with them and stuff. And this this whale, Payakan, has been outlawed because these whales, you know, they very intelligently have come to the conclusion that, like, violence just endlessly begets violence. And so they've just decided, you know, the only other way to enforce something like that besides violence is, you know, just social isolation. So he's been cut off from the tribe, this whale, Payakan. And so, you know, Loak feeling the same sort of loneliness makes friends with Khan. And herein is where, like, a lot of this sort of emotional um, relevance that drives the rest of the story um, in that, like, the humans on Pandora fucking hunt the whales because they have this special goo in their brains (laughs) that stops human aging. Which is, like, when you think about it, it's so monstrous. Because you think of, like, fucking, like... It just stops human aging. So you're thinking of, like, fucking, like... Cretinous billionaires like fucking Sheldon Adelson and Bill Gates. <laughs> like, just, like, like <laughs> sure 89 year old, 89-year-olds, like, with billions of dollars. And they're living forever off of this... Off the whale juice. Yeah. And, and so you... They build this connection, and then you can go and see them. Like he sees Pyakon's memories of like his mother getting killed in front of him, and his decision to like do an act of rebellion against the whalers by like Leading taking a, a bunch, bunch of other of whales and uh, some metcaina. Yeah, well. and they try to fight back, and they all get killed except for him. And so that's when he gets outcast. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm keeping talking. Well, it's James Cameron. Also, like he heavily uses the concept of symbiosis in nature, which, from like a scientific evolutionary perspective, 
everything on the planet like evolved to protect and conserve nature except for humans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and okay, so and therein lies okay, so I think what's the most interesting thing about what the film is doing is um, I guess we're skipping a lot of stuff here, but like it's the sort of dichotomy between the two forms of afterlife that the film depicts. And so we have this sort of Anquarich who dies in the first film and is resurrected in an avatar body in this film. It's sort of the idea of like Hegel's bad infinity where like endless repetition like yeah. and like once it gets bad it's never going to get better. So he's like he yes, he has the afterlife, he has eternal life, but he will forever be like like this military this, this, corporation this owns has. his yeah. soul. It's like apocalypse now levels. Like, like this, this is all I got. He's forever going to be resurrected as a marine. And that's what another thing that's interesting about his character is that you know, a lot of villains what makes them fall flat is what's evil about them is something that's inherent to themselves, which, you know, is harder to parse if you're just a regular person who doesn't think of themselves as evil. Yeah. And so what is evil about him is his job and how he has been instrumentalized and then how his psyche has been formed in order to be totally defined by his job, you know? And so, you know, it doesn't make him any less scary or evil. In fact, it kind of makes him more. But it, he retains a sense of humanity that makes him more interesting, I feel like. Yeah. And then so the flip side is... Um, Everybody saw this movie, right? I guess. Yeah, we, we it's the third, it's Earth, a third so. biggest yeah, movie. I know how it is. <laughs> yeah. We got it. So, according to the box office numbers, every person on Earth has seen this movie. Yeah. <laughs> so, Natan, their oldest son, yeah. gets killed. And at the end, the very end of the movie is um, Jake Sully and Natiri tapping into the to their world tree, and you know, they he watches a memory that him and his son both have of him as a boy like it's a very emotional moment in and of itself but it's like what I think is so profound is what James Cameron is trying to say is he's trying to create a sense of spiritual collectivism in the sense that like there's a different idea of immortality that he has whereas like if you think of if you try to a lot of people think of eternity as eternity is only eternity if it's eternity for me and what he's trying to say is like, eternity can is real in this. If you can, if you can break out of that sense and you can think of it as the world will exist beyond me, and that's a, and but my, my spiritual spirituality part is of part of that equation. Yeah, and like, and that's that, part. Like you can believe in, like you can attain a sense of a moral life if you get rid of the idea of. A moral life for yourself, and that's part of like the movie's like whole like the mantra, the way of water is yeah. that like we are like we come from the ocean to the ocean we will return, and the ocean will always like yeah. Be there. And so I don't know. It's like what it does in what makes the film a productive like you know it's you can say it's not much because it's still a movie, but we don't have much going for us. Yeah, <laughs> but like like what makes it productive is it makes you. Well, for one, it leaves you with a lack, which is, like, the beauty of this world, and then, like, sort of, it leaves you with these feelings that, like, you know, it's not narcotic in the sense that it leaves you with that lack, and you are then presented with the opportunity to act on that. Because you can, because we live in the world with other living beings and such. Um, 
And so, yeah, I don't know. I think that's a really, I think it's very easy to watch this film, which itself is just a, a brilliant spectacle, brilliant spectacle, and see it just as that. And that works, you know, because it is that. But I think what makes Jim, Jim Cameron so unique is that he can create that while also, like, he doesn't let you be comfortable. It's not like, he's not letting you escape anything, you know? Yeah. I don't know if you have anything more you want to say about that. Yeah, I mean, it's just a part of... The movie's about embracing reality. Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. yeah. It wants you to build those connections between Pandora and Earth. Right. You know? And again, I just think, I think that this movie does it, like, to a completely different level than the first one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I was just, I was very touched yeah. by this one. Well, I think we should also talk about, we talked about the, the middle hour, which is where a lot of the film's visual beauty yeah. is displayed. Um, especially with a lot of all the underwater scenes and just the stunning flora and fauna, which looks so real. Um, but the last hour of the film, which is like sort of this climax in which oh, you know, yeah. they sort of take up the mantle of violence against, you know, Quaritch and the whalers who team up. And that's where Jim, like, because James Cameron is like the greatest blockbuster director yeah. of all time. And like, he's created his own, he's, he's essentially a blockbuster auteur in that he creates yeah. all of his own films and such. Um, and like, this is where he gets to show off like his unbelievable, like, the, the battle is unbelievably exciting as well, like, yeah. obviously. Um, and there's like, the violence is really palpable. Like every fucking shot of like a giant fucking pew pool yeah. pew sized arrow <laughs> going through the cockpit of a of a helicopter just works every time. But then like and like so that like gets you you know, it's super exciting obviously and it looks amazing. But then I think the film ends on a like for me it was extremely emotional note. Yeah. Like like, it has to engage in these ideas of family, and, like, I think the scene at the end where the boat is sinking, and, like, they're, they're all desperately, they're thinking they're gonna die, and then, you know, they, they make it out, and it's, I don't know, mm -hmm. it, I think that scene is I would say that no other movie this year, like, when I, from beginning to end, just, like, just completely absorbs me, except, except maybe Tar, but, like, it just completely brings me into this world and like for its entire runtime, I'm it's just it's just me and that and that's yeah. it mm -hmm. yeah not in a not in like an escapist way even like because a lot because a lot of people do approach it in that escapist yeah, way but, but I think it uses it uses that its ability to do that for the function of what it's trying to say right you know because like it brings you into this world but it forces you to look at it a certain way you know? mm -hmm. yeah I don't know and Again, if James Cameron is the only blockbuster auteur left, it's just, it's great that he's using it for something, because Avatar is a movie about something, mm -hmm. which... Yeah, and it, it's his movie, first of all. And it's like, I don't think until I watched this that it finally hit me how blockbuster movies just aren't about anything. Mm -hmm. I think what you're getting at is the idea of, I think, a lot of... Some people can struggle to handle how earnest he is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like genuine, is there about like, um, like he's he wants like a lot of 
blockbuster films nowadays, like, they're they're narcotic. They want you. They're like, suppress like any display of emotion is like cringeworthy and needs to be suppressed with irony. And what this film does is the opposite of that. It's like, it's deeply emotional, and it has a very specific and legitimate political message along with yeah. it. And this very legitimate, like, spiritual message. He's like, he's like begging us to, like, get on board with him, you know? Yeah. It's great. I don't know what it's like. I mean, there's, there's not much else I can really say. We kind of, like, tapped into literally everything. I, I think for me, I forgot how good Avatar was. I was on board with the hate train of people, like, forgetting about, like, the collective memory of how great it was at the mm-hmm. time. Um, and then I rewatched it before the sequel, and I was like, oh, I forgot how great this was. And then I saw it in theaters and like IMAX 3D with like yeah, recliners, my family. Cool. And I was like, 30 minutes in, right back to where I was, like completely entranced by the world of Pandora and how like uh, the life that exists there is something that we should strive to achieve for and mm-hmm. something that we can if we just like actually go outside, <laughs> we actually touch grass. But mm. if does anyone else have anything else to say? Well, we are say- one with a lot. True. I would say uh, two more things. More than just, and I'm not like belittling what you said, more than just like going outside, I think what he's trying to tell us is that, especially even with the first movie, given how much of a zero sort of Jake Sully is, like his character, he's not even supposed to be there, you know, like, and he's, there's nothing unique about him. People like, you know, when people say he's like, oh, you know, the white interloper is like more skilled than everyone, it's not even that. It's just, they, like, like they don't even have any conception of what humans are willing to do. And that's what's unique about him, is that he knows what the humans have done to Earth and how violent they're willing to be. And so that's what makes him unique. Um, and I think what happens in this film, and I think what he's building with Quaritch, is he wants to let the audience know that, one, we have to... You have to break out of your own psychosis that you just get from living in this, living in America. This, you know, we are the extractors of the world. You know, we do like the first film is about how we do 9/11 every day to every other country, to every country right. in the world. Um, and like, you have to emerge from that, but you can. Like, you can change. Is like what he's saying. Is like, if you can break yourself out of that psychosis. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about is like, he's sort of. He's also hyper-focused in details, which, some of which, like, are funny, like, the idea of, like, all the operators who get brought back into Avatar bodies, they fucking <laughs> have Oakley's. Punisher tattoos, and they're, like, They have to get Oakley's. all that shit custom-made for their Avatar bodies. Because that's, like, the same idea as, like, the mm-hmm. bad infinity, and, in, in, like, right. time is a flat circle, like, mm-hmm. like, this cultural signifier oh, just wow. remains, you know? Yeah. Simplify. Yeah, but even even in that, I don't know if this is a thing that I don't think anybody noticed. On their fucking like breastplates, mm-hmm. it says Phoenix, which yeah, I don't know if this was a reference to this, but Operation Phoenix in Vietnam was our enormous CIA operation, which killed like tens of thousands of people and was like the most successful part of Vietnam, in which we used like advanced computer networks for the first time, and it's like kind of how the internet was developed. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if he's referencing that, but, like, he's he's really, like, interested in, like, especially with the first film as well, different roles within sort of the sort of imperialist, fourth Reich, like, bureaucracy that he's created. Like, 
like in the first film, I feel like he focused a lot on like the Sigourney Weaver character who's, you know, she's the scientist and she's like, I'm better than everybody else in this Imperial machine because I know the language, I can talk to them. You can do it in a humane way. Right, but I'm, she's the same and that's what she comes to realize yeah. and that's what that, her arc is about in that first one. Jermaine Clement in this one too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Did he survive? Is he still alive? I don't, think I don't so. know. Every, no, I think he's everybody. Still alive. Well, I know the guy who got his hand cut off by oh, the whale. Yeah. He's coming back. I know he's that. He's coming back with a bionic arm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's gonna fucking, yeah. gonna have fucking. Uh, why can I not remember this? What's what's the what's the book about the whale? Not not the movie The Whale. Moby Dick. Moby Dick. We're gonna have a Moby Dick subplot. For like Avatar twenty 3. minutes, the movie is Moby Dick. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's. I think. It's, it's, you know, it's not much, but I think, you know, they'll, if, if the future and turns out well, there'll be a little footnote in the history books that say, like, the biggest movies in the world at this time were this movie about how you have to give yourself up in acts of revolutionary violence against the American imperialist state to save the environment, and, I don't know, I think it's spectacular that that mm -hmm. these exist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Avatar. Avatar. The way <laughs> Yeah. Um, please go see Avatar. I mean, you probably already have. You, it's still this one's too late. You uh, missed out. It's finally too late. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, everyone we, should go see it. Um, is it on, like, Blu-ray? Yeah, but it's yeah. not real. It's not a real movie outside of the theaters. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that's it. Yeah, movie. That concludes our yes. top ten films of 2022. I'm so glad we have to talk about this. 16, 16 hours later. 16. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. You guys yeah. all had great stuff to say. Yeah. Thanks, all everyone. Sorts of movies. It was fun. Yeah, it was really fun. Here's and to 2023 that we're already like a quarter of the way through. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, thank you for listening, and I hope to hear from you all next time. Woo! Goodbye. Bye.